Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello, my name is Justin Hamilton and welcome to season two of Big Squid. In our latest episode, we're going to grapple with the strangest song on the Black Star album, Girl Loves Me. It's a composition made up of not one, but two counterculture dialects that thrived in London during the mid-60s. I also think it's a song that revels in the sense of humour that permeates the whole Black Star album. That's one of the things that I think continuously gets lost with this collection of songs. There is still a sense of humour there. And Bowie may have known the final curtain was beginning to fall, but he wasn't afraid to throw some cheeky ideas our way before his final bow. I'll also be sharing with you the moment my career peaked and why I truly believe I should have retired my stand-up career back in 2004. But before we go any further, where the fuck did Monday go? When it came to acting, you could see it in the hilarious cruelty he displayed in the TV show Extras, or you could see it in the way he was the ultimate authority on modelling in his cameo in Zoolander, or even yet, just take in the pantomime joy in Labyrinth. Bowie always had that twinkle in his eye, and when it came to his music, I feel that same sense of humour could easily be found, but overly serious reviewers would miss the gags that were laying in plain sight and criticise Bowie for being pretentious or lost up his own ass, like he wasn't in on the joke from the beginning. As an example, go back and listen to the Outside album and read the liner notes and tell me that whole album isn't a beautiful and haunting pastiche of detective stories against a backdrop of society losing its shit as we tumbled and twirled our way towards the new millennium. When you first hear Girl Loves Me, there's an automatic response to believe that what Bowie is singing is plain gibberish. This wouldn't be the first time he'd leaned into the nonsensical. 
Listen to the opening lines of Little Wonder, a song that is literally Bowie naming Snow White's seven dwarves and then making up his own when he runs out of characters. Then there's what Bowie described as phonetic language that doesn't exist that he used for the song Vashawa on the Low album. As Chris O'Leary notes, the lines aren't nonsense words he dashed out. They're a series of phonetics with a rich internal rhyme scheme and a common rhythm bass. I've also read long articles about how it might have been inspired by Esperanto, but have a listen yourself. These are the lyrics that appear four minutes into the song. Bowie approximates the idea of words to take us to places of deep emotion that create a mood and a tension that are beyond mere phrases. A simple translation of this song feels like it kind of misses the point. It reduces it to a simple explanation that would take away some of the magic that's contained within the track. The same can be said for Girl Loves Me, with the relenting music that builds and repeats, and Bowie's vocals starting out like a beguiling children's rhyme. At first it sounds like a language that reminds us of the way kids talk before they become inoculated with education and the world around them. The words here are haunting gibberish that eventually segue into this melancholic refrain of an older man wondering when his days finally slipped away. Even musician Jason Lindner said that when the band first heard the lyrics, they wondered just what the hell was going on with these words. It's time to unleash the squid bits to get our head around this song. Girl Loves Me is made up of two dialects that found a cultural prominence in London in the mid-60s. The first is known as Polari, a form of cant slang that was used in Britain by actors, circus performers, prostitutes and the gay subculture. Its origins are debated, but it appears that it became wildly used from the 19th century on. It's a mixture of romance, Romani, London slang, rhyming slang and sailor slang. Later, it embraced parts of the Yiddish language and 1960s drug subculture slang. It was considered a constantly developing form of language with a small core lexicon of about 20 words. It was often used in the gay subculture at a time when homosexual activity was illegal and it allowed gay people to disguise themselves from aggressive outsiders and undercover cops. Bowie would have had two ways to learn and experience Polari. As a young man being part of the 60s London-based theatre and music scenes, the language flourished and Bowie would have come into contact with this British gay life through his mime teacher Lindsay Kemp and composer Lionel Bart. Also, the BBC radio show Round the Horn had two characters called Julian and Sandy who popularised the clandestine patois through their banter, allowing them to get away with over-the-top innuendo right under the noses of their BBC bosses. By the time the partial decriminalisation of adult homosexual acts in England and Wales passed in 1967, the lack of need for the secret subculture code led to its slow decline in use. Bowie was obviously still enamoured with it because you can find him continuously using certain terms in interviews and his lyrics, especially in the early 70s. Journalist Michael Watts noted in his 1972 article where Bowie came out that he was using words like Varda and Super a lot. The Bewley Brothers also shows traces of the secret language with use of the word traders. That was a word that meant the casual partner of a gay man. The other dialect used is NADSAT, which finds its origins in Anthony Burgess' novel A Clockwork Orange, and was introduced to an even broader audience through Stanley Kubrick's movie adaptation. 
NADSAT is an argo used by the teenage gang members in the dystopian novel and is a form of Russian-influenced English. Burgess wasn't just an author, but also a linguist, and his love of all languages made him acutely aware that linguistic slang at its very root is constantly changing. With the main character Alex telling the story in first-person narration, the invention of NADSAT was created for a pragmatic reason. Burgess theorised that if he wrote in the modes of speech that were contemporary at the time, the novel would become dated very quickly. By giving his narrator a unique voice, Alex remains ageless while reinforcing his indifference to society's norms. It also suggests that youth culture exists independently of the rest of society. Bowie was a big fan of A Clockwork Orange and used the movie as a sartorial guide for Ziggy's band, The Spiders from Mars, and dropped the word droogie in the song Suffragette City. He also opened many Ziggy concerts with Beethoven's Symphony No. 9, a song that Alex describes in the book as bliss and heaven before it takes a sinister turn when he is forced to endure the song during aversion therapy. In 1993, Bowie stated in an interview, This kind of fake language fitted perfectly with what I was trying to do in creating this fake world, or this world that hadn't happened yet. And this idea appears to have never left his interest throughout the years. As we've noted in earlier podcasts, Bowie enjoyed creating fake mythology, which is evident even in his lesser works, like songs that include Glass Spider. I've often thought of Girl Loves Me as the TVC-15 of Blackstar. TVC-15 is the fourth track on the Station to Station album, and when I was younger, it initially felt to me at odds with the rest of the album. Both songs are very different in composition and intent, but both tracks feel like songs that came from different recording sessions. Yet the more I listened to each song, the more I found the mood and the groove fit perfectly on each album, and in turn, I loved them even more for their uniqueness. Musically, O'Leary in his book draws a correlation with No One Calls, a B-side song from Bowie's 1999 album, Hours. No One Calls is a little-known song that sounds like an android has been programmed to mimic human emotions. The vocal and the robotic music create a disturbing soundscape. Have a listen. You can hear the comparison O'Leary is drawing to our attention with this song and Girl Loves Me. Both songs are made of vocals that appear to skip alongside the music rather than embracing the rhythm where they would naturally sit. They also both appear at first to be incongruous songs that make little sense, but once you reach the end you feel this deep melancholy that creeps up inside of you, a distancing that causes you to feel very small and alone. The difference between the two tracks for me is that I think there's still an inherent humour in Girl Loves Me, while No One Calls never lets you feel any warmth throughout the duration of the track. So what could Girl Loves Me be possibly saying to us? With the lyrics that open with... So as you can hear, we are going to have to translate the Nadsat and Polari to have any hope of some sort of reading on this song. Now... I normally avoid literal translations. I'm much happier to be drawn along with a song that presents me with a feeling or a mood than a straightforward message. But as with most Bowie songs, even a translation of the lyrics doesn't really leave us with any clear message. Now, before I give you what I think the lyrics might be and what they might mean, I have to explain. This is just my interpretation. Even translating the Polari and Nadsat was difficult. People kind of disagree on what some of the words might mean. 
Sometimes the spelling is different. So what I'm trying to do is bring these words together in a way that makes sense as a sentence. And then once I did that, I then went and read some articles and I went some to some message boards and look... I was lost for a long time comparing back and forth between all of this. And, and here and there, there were some sentences that I was in complete agreement with. And then there were others where there was some conjecture. So if you're listening to this and you have a different view on these lyrics, please share them with me over at the Big Squid Facebook page, as I'm always excited to discover what other people might be thinking. Remember, this isn't definitive. This is just what I'm thinking. So the opening lines are, and I'm going to read these to you, and it's really hard not to read them in almost tune to the song because they're so specific. But the opening lines are, China so sound so titty up this mouth chick say. Party up mood Nancy Velasot round on Tuesday. Real bad dizzy snatch making all the omies mad Thursday. Pop a blind to the poly in the hole by Friday. Where the fuck did Monday go? I'm cold to this pig and pug show. I'm sitting in the chestnut tree. Who the fuck's going to mess with me? We then have the repeated chorus of Girl Loves Me, Hey China, and the Where the fuck did Monday go is repeated over and over before we head into the next lines of You vidi at the China, Chunesi with the red rot, Libby loving lit so fit so, Deva chonka watch her garbles. Spatchko at the Ross shop, Splitter dead from his Deng Deng, Vidi Vidi at the China, and then we return to the alternating Girl Loves Me and Where the Fuck Did Monday Go lines. So, <laughs> even reading that out loud is feels like I should have stretched before I did it. So I have my version here, uh, which was tricky to work out, as I said, because you're going back and forth between Nadsat and Polari. And uh, once again, there's either a combination of misspelled words or at the very least, alternate spellings of these words. So when you're dealing with an invented dialect, that is some really tricky shit to do with. So this is what I've translated. The lyrics to me are, Girl is cool, so pretty up this boy, say. Party up, man, no drugs round on Tuesday. Great pussy making all the boys mad Thursday. Please Blind to where all the money goes by Friday. Where the fuck did Monday go? I'm over this circus. I'm sitting in the chestnut tree. Who the fuck's going to mess with me? Then uh, we get the chorus of Girl Loves Me. Hey, girl. And the return to where the fuck did Monday go? And then we get to the next lines, which are, You look at the woman with wonderful red mouth, making love face obsessed. The beautiful woman, look at her grace. Sleeping at the cop shop, split an old man from his money. Really, look at that woman. And then it is back to the girl loves me, hey woman, and where the fuck did Monday go? So I'm guessing you're feeling completely clear about this, right? (laughs) To add another level of intrigue, let's go full horseshoe and look at one line really closely. It's the line, I'm sitting in the chestnut tree. This line appears to be a reference to the Chestnut Tree Cafe from George Orwell's 1984. Early in that book, the protagonist Winston mentions that the cafe is where thought criminals spend much of their time. It is also the cafe that Winston finds himself sitting in at the end of the book after he has been tortured into giving up his true love, Julia. 
when they eventually see each other again, they both admit to selling each other out, and now there is no love left between them. Now he sits in the cafe drinking gin, and he hears a song with the lyrics, Under the spreading chestnut tree, I sold you and you sold me. He's alone. His love for Julia is gone. He sits in this place that people attend after being tortured, but before... Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. They're killed. And he tearfully looks up at the visage of Big Brother, full of love and having won the victory over himself. Now, we know that Bowie was a big fan of Orwell's 1984, having attempted to make a musical based on the book as far back as the early to mid-70s. Even though that project fell through when he couldn't gain the rights, that inspired Bowie to make the album Diamond Dogs, which even has two songs on it entitled 1984 and Big Brother. So the chestnut tree line has been the part I keep returning to over and over, and I've spent so long trying to work out what I think this song could possibly be about. I may have gone mildly insane, or more insane. I've flipped many times on my reading of the lyrics, but the idea I keep returning to, and this might be the most out there thought I've had on a Bowie song for a long time. As I said, I don't normally try and interpret everything down to the last word, but for this podcast, I wanted to try and find a way in to not only explain my love of the album, but uh, also give you a different way to look at it, or maybe even just give you a different appreciation. This is a celebration, right? So where I've gone with this, you might disagree completely. But uh, anyway, let's get into it, right? So if Bowie was looking back at his past while making this album and laying down his final thoughts, I looked at the years when he would have been most immersed with Polari and Nadsat, which coincides with the time he was at first dating and then married to his first wife, Angie Bowie. Now, it wouldn't be the first time he's commented on past lives. He'd hinted at Angie and the lyrics to Strangers When We Meet from the Outside album. Also, his first song from the next day was Where Are We Now, which appeared in part to look back at his first love, Hermione Farthingdale. But getting back to his first wife, Angie and David had a tumultuous relationship that ended extremely unhappily, but it would be completely unfair to forget how important she was in those first few years, especially in helping to conceptualise the look of Ziggy Stardust. I think this song is looking back on those years with Angie, when she was cool and helped pretty up the young David, when they took all the drugs and they partied, but eventually their open relationship became poisonous and in the end devolved into an acrimonious state. 
I think this is Bowie looking back at her now that he's divorced from any feeling and well after she's drained him of all he had to give. I think there's acknowledgement from Bowie that he knows that in her own way she did love him, but in in, in a very certain way that's not needed anymore and, and wasn't actually healthy. And he also knows that she will continue to dine out on their story well after he's gone. So, what do you think? Have I gone completely insane? Is this a cynical reading of the song? Have I accidentally stumbled upon something hidden deep in the shifting lyrics? Like, I haven't found an interpretation of the song about Angie anywhere else. That doesn't make it correct, but it also doesn't really make it wrong either. Have I just totally and utterly gone out of my mind? Is this the song that has finally broken me? See, I think part of what makes this a funny song is that Bowie could have written something we could interpret with words that we use in our everyday life, but he deliberately keeps us off balance, shifting between three different dialects, one of which is fictional and the other is lost to time, and including some words that we use regularly. This song is designed to be listened to, to be interpreted, to be overanalyzed. That's part of what I think makes it funny. And in the end, it's probably completely misread. And the fact that after four years of listening to this song that I have arrived at this conclusion, after spending a ridiculous amount of time staring at the words while listening to the song over and over again, taking into account that's probably what Bowie set out to do when he deliberately put the song together like this, that means he literally achieved exactly what he wanted from his fans, and specifically this fan. What an absolute arsehole. He nailed me. (laughs) This episode required so much deep diving, I could have easily fallen over with the bends, but suffice to say, apart from the usual shout-outs to Chris O'Leary and Nicholas Pegg and their works, I have sifted through so many sites that translate Polari and Nadsat, not to mention the countless pages where punters have expressed their opinions. If I was to begin to list them here, I'd have to put on a brand new season of Big Squid. If you're curious about what other people are thinking, there are sites waiting for you. But be warned, once you begin, you might find yourself literally wondering where the fuck Monday has gone. To be honest, this episode has taken twice as long to produce because I would just read and read and read and read and I'd do the translation and then I'd put it together and then that would make me think of something else and then I'd go and do a little bit of study over here. It has been a hell of a journey, and thank goodness I love this song. And by the way, just before you think I've missed a big detail with this song, let me assure you, I will be talking about the Monday when we found out Bowie had died in our final episode. I think David Bowie was always funny, and this song to me is a prime example of his sense of humour, that mischievousness at play. After I saw his concerts in the UK, it was announced he would be finally returning to Australia for a tour. But much to my chagrin, it was during the Adelaide Fringe Festival, an important part of the year for me where I would perform my own comedy shows and I would make new contacts that would help me throughout the year. I had too many responsibilities to suddenly cancel. By the time we found out, 
I wasn't going to be able to tour around Australia seeing every concert that I could. I was already locked in. But I managed to buy tickets to see Bowie in Brisbane and his one night in Adelaide. In the meantime, I worked on a casual basis for the youth radio network Triple J, and when it was announced that Bowie would be holding a press conference in Sydney, the Triple J breakfast hosts Will Anderson and Adam Spencer generously lobbied to send me with their producer on their behalf. If you ever wondered what a blood debt might sound like in the modern world, well, you just heard one then. The morning that I attended was full of important journalists in the Australian scene, and I knew that I wasn't just a small fish in a large bowl. I was a slight film of fungus that you would find in the corner. I knew if I were to be able to ask a question, I would have to be prominent, and much to my delight, I found a seat in the front row right in front of the table at which Bowie would be sitting. When he finally came out, he was in fine form, big smiles, ready to answer any question, But soon the mood turned ever so slightly in the room as the questions thrown to Bowie were, how can I say this nicely? They were uninteresting. One journalist claimed he looked like he hadn't aged since his last tour, to which Bowie claimed this was absurd and he pointed out his new teeth. Another journalist brought up stuff from the 60s. Another Man, I don't even think he was a journalist. He just asked Bowie what his favourite colour was. This was quite clearly a commercial radio prank that drew an exasperated response from Bowie. This was driving me insane. This is Bowie, the man who helped usher in glam rock, had helped popularise electronic music outside of Europe, had been the pin-up for the new romantics, had mythologised the blue-eyed soul that ruled the charts in the 80s. He'd appeared in movies. His music had appeared in movies. He'd had movies made about him. He was an artist. His thoughts on the internet were wildly prescient at the end of the last century and were just now beginning to become common knowledge. There's so much to fucking talk about and some dickhead is asking him what his favourite colour was. Ugh. The other problem was that I was a complete nobody in the room and the microphone was being handed around to all the known journalists who were, quite frankly, in my opinion, fucking it up. So there was only one way to get his attention and to get that microphone and that was to be super uncool. So what I did was I just sat there with my hand in the air like I was back in primary school attempting to get my teacher's attention. Bowie saw me with my hand up and motioned for me to have the microphone. We were told we were only allowed to ask one question, so I knew I had to get his attention immediately. And once I had it, I had to ask a question that I knew would engage the man. So when the microphone was handed to me, I opened with, I saw you on the reality tour in the UK last year. And as soon as I said those words, I saw him lean forward in his chair. I continued, You had a great relationship with your opening act, The Dandy Warhols. If you were to get back into producing, which current artist would you like to work with? Knowing that Bowie had remained a fan of music all his life, I knew this was the best question I could throw his way in the short amount of time that I had. And for once in my life, I was bang on correct. Bowie thought about the question and answered. He talked about bands like Mercury Rev and Granddaddy. He talked about how he'd very much like to work with Iggy Pop again. He mentioned Arcade Fire. And every time he talked about a band, he'd he'd pause to have a think about who else. Now, I know I was supposed to give up the microphone because I'd asked my one question, but I figured he quite clearly liked my question, so why not just sneak in another 
Now, every time I'd go to speak, Bowie would cut me off with another band he'd just thought about. By the fifth time that he'd interrupted me, he laughed and apologised for continuously cutting me off. Now, I don't know where this next line came from. I hadn't thought of it in the lead-up, but I immediately ad-libbed to him, That's okay. I just wanted to tell you that I was happy to see the kids get excited when you launched into Under Pressure because they recognised the song and didn't think it was a vanilla ice cover. And then Bowie did something incredible. He laughed. That's right, he laughed. Can you imagine making someone you admire laugh? And not only admire, but this is David Bowie. Like, this is the guy that had changed my life when I was 11 years old. He'd had such a, an indelible influence on every aspect of my creative life. And now here I am as a stand-up comedian. And I'm not only sitting opposite David Bowie, but I've said something that he has found genuinely funny. This is the absolute highlight of my comedy career. He stopped laughing and he replied, you know the thing about those kids? They're all mine. All of them, I asked. Yep, he shot back, still laughing. I said, wow, you're quite virile. He said, I know, it makes me feel like, and I said, a lad? And he said, nah, a geezer. And I said, nice one, David. And then someone came up and ripped the microphone away from me because I'd taken up too much of the press conference. I was wrapped. I could have floated across the universe after this exchange. It's always a roll of the dice when talking to people you admire. You're always scared they'll be an arsehole or you'll fuck up, thus ruining your connection to that person forever. But this was perfect. Not too long, just enough to have had an amazing experience. A few nights later, I saw him perform in Brisbane, and then I next saw his gig in Adelaide. This time, I bought the tickets, including one for Mum, who was happy to sit up in the stands. I have to tell you, they were much more expensive than 1983, but it was worth it, of course. I was front row, with a couple of friends standing just behind me. And when the concert began, Bowie walked onto the stage, and while he was singing the opening song, Rebel Rebel... I could have sworn I saw him do a double take when he looked down in my direction. Now, I thought maybe I was getting a little overexcited and that I should, quite frankly, calm the fuck down. Then two songs later, while singing Fame, in that moment where the word fame cascades across the stage, Bowie looked down at me again, pointed and waved. My two friends behind me grabbed my shoulders and shook me in shock at what they'd just seen. To be honest, I'm glad they were there, or I would have been uncertain if I'd imagined it, but the way their hands dug into me with excitement made the moment feel real. I feel like I should have quit comedy after Sydney. Even the best gigs I've experienced since that fateful day in 2004 have paled when compared with this glorious moment. And I hope when he looked down in Adelaide and he noticed me and he remembered me, I hope he thought that maybe, just maybe, I was that relatively cool guy from the press conference. That would make me very happy because I in turn will never stop thinking David Bowie was the ultimate in cool. Thank you for listening. Only two more episodes to go in season two of Big Squid. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and I look forward to your company next time. Until then.
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.